Welcome to the Daily Dive Weekend Edition. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and every week I explore the top stories making waves in the news and some that are just plain interesting. I'll connect you with the journalists and the people who know the story and bring you news without the noise so you can make an informed decision. You can catch a new episode of the Daily Dive every Monday through Friday, and it's ready when you wake up. On the Weekend Edition, I'll be bringing you some of the best stories from the week. One of the big political stories this week was the second contest for the Democratic candidates on their way to the Democratic nomination for president. This one took place in New Hampshire and Senator Bernie Sanders emerged victorious there. After winning the most amount of delegates in Iowa, former Mayor Pete Buttigieg now joins Bernie Sanders as the two front runners in this race. Bernie Sanders on the progressive side and Pete Buttigieg on the moderate side. The landscape of the Democratic race could also be changing with a rising Senator Amy Klobuchar, who came in third in New Hampshire, and a declining Joe Biden, who came in fifth in New Hampshire. He didn't even break double digits there. For more on the big takeaways from New Hampshire, we spoke to Maya King. She's a 2020 fellow at Politico. Well, I think you're absolutely right to say that we have some new frontrunners. And if you had said even last week that Amy Klobuchar would be in third place in this race, That would probably be a shock to a number of people. However, it it goes to show you that we just don't really know how this thing is going to pan out. What I will say, though, of course, what matters the most right now is getting delegates. And what that requires is building a coalition. So we've gotten the shock of these results. And now the opportunity is in the hands of folks like Bernie Sanders and especially Pete Buttigieg to build a stronger coalition as we know, Buttigieg has struggled a lot to gain the attention of people of color. So as a front runner and getting the front runner treatment, he has to really live out what the definition of a front runner really is, which means having the greatest amount of support of the greatest number of people. The interesting thing, too, that's shaping up here is that while Bernie Sanders did well, obviously, in Iowa and won in New Hampshire, really the moderates are kind of still not certain who their candidate is, let's say. Uh, Elizabeth Warren has fallen a little further down in the pack, making Bernie that progressive candidate of choice. But if you combine the votes for the moderates, you know, maybe once they coalesce or like you said, once they build that coalition, the moderates will outweigh the progressives, at least on this front. One thing that my colleagues have pointed out, especially those who are on the ground in New Hampshire, is in the midst of this indecision from a number of voters in New Hampshire and even in Iowa, Folks were torn between a far progressive like Bernie Sanders and a moderate like Amy Klobuchar. So you also have to kind of figure out and ask folks, okay, well, what are the policies that matter the most to you? And what we've heard time and time again is that health care is something that voters really do care about. And Sanders is someone who has had a solid message on health care from the beginning. I mean, really, for decades, he's had a solid message that has not changed And that resonated. And you can tell. I mean, it's evident now in how he's doing. Looking to Amy Klobuchar, this is on her these next few weeks, these next few contests to really capitalize on the momentum that she has, you know, coming in third place is really great. She's got some delegates out of that also. But it's going to be interesting to see how she plays the next few weeks, because she went all in really in Iowa and New Hampshire. She had a pretty robust operation there. But in these next few states that are coming up to vote next and leading into Super Tuesday, the operation not so big. She's also a very good public speaker, and she's had several strong debate performances. And I think that matters a lot to voters because they're hearing her say, if you are a middle class voter and you don't know how you're going to make it to the next day, I hear you, I see you, and I will fight for you. And that's messaging that right now really works. 
And that leads us to Joe Biden, a disappointing showing in New Hampshire, although we knew it already. He wasn't even there when the results came in. He had already skipped town to South Carolina. But that is his, quote unquote, firewall there with African-American voters. He's looking to Nevada as well. But people are getting scared that this whole electability thing that Joe Biden had been talking about for so long might not be there. I'm in South Carolina now, and I saw the former vice president speak last night in Columbia, and his supporters remain very strong and steadfast in their support of the vice president. But one thing that I heard a lot from people is we're waiting for Uncle Joe. And what that means is they support Joe Biden's candidacy and they still believe in the message that he's most electable, but they need for him to demonstrate that as well. They're looking for a stronger performance. They want him to behave like a front runner, I think, is what they're getting at. And they're just not quite seeing it. And so if he doesn't perform, I really think in the top two slots in Nevada, it's still possible for him to finish in first in South Carolina. But if he gets the win just by the skin of his teeth, it's still hard to make a strong case for his path to the nomination. Maya King, 2020 fellow at Politico. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me. It was back in September 2017 that we learned from credit reporting company Equifax that they had been hacked and the personal information of about 147 million people had been compromised. This past Monday, the Justice Department charged four Chinese military members as the culprits. They exploited a software vulnerability that Equifax failed to patch, and the hackers were able to spend weeks inside the system stealing sensitive data. For more on how this was done, we spoke to Matt Zapotosky, national security reporter at The Washington Post. The Justice Department says this was an operation by four members of the People's Liberation Army, which is China's military, that these four guys had hacked into Equifax's systems, stealing, as you mentioned, personal information, social security numbers, names, that sort of thing. The Justice Department fears that this sort of has a twofold purpose. One, it's kind of economic espionage. Another thing was purportedly taken or allegedly taken was company trade secrets, Equifax trade secrets. But the other thing the Justice Department fears is going on here is that China is amassing this huge database of Americans' personal information. The Chinese, in the Justice Department's view, maybe hopes to use that to target people as possible people that they can flip to become spies or use for other intelligence reasons. And this information is really helpful to them in that. The personal information is like the perfect leverage for doing something like that. But we've been going back and forth with China now for a while on certain things. There's other hacks that they've been doing on us. In this case, in particular, China denies any cyber attacks, but we know that they've been responsible for a few in the past. The attorney general yesterday in announcing this case said that it was of a piece with many others back in 2014-2015. Authorities here accused China of hacking the health insurer Anthem. The OPM, the Office of Personnel Management hack, was around that time too. And then just a couple years ago, 2018, the hotel chain Marriott got hacked. And again, the fear is that China is just taking, amassing all this personal information on Americans and then building a database that they can use for intelligence purposes, plus the economic espionage aspect. Of this. So Justice Department officials definitely fear that this is part of a troubling pattern. After looking into it, I think Equifax revised their number up to 147 million people that got hacked. They settled on a $700 million settlement and people that got affected can get free credit monitoring or a cash payout of $125. Although that was very suspect too. They said if too many people come to us for money, that number could go down. What do we know about how these poor Chinese hackers were able to do it? Some of it seems like it was still partly Equifax's fault. So 
there was a simple way of explaining this is there was kind of a security flaw that a software company had disclosed, but Equifax didn't plug the gap. So Chinese hackers, you know, motivated Chinese hackers are able to get in through this unrepaired software flaw. And then in addition to that, they took steps to cover their tracks. So they routed server traffic through like 34 servers in 20 different countries. They would wipe the logs that would show their activity. They used Equifax's own encrypted communication channel so that they just couldn't be detected. But indeed, there is a question to be raised for Equifax here. This software flaw had been publicly disclosed and it was not fixed. And that really helped the Chinese get in here and access all this data. My understanding, these hackers were so deep into Equifax's system and, you know, and going through all these procedures to kind of mask what was actually happening. They were so deep in there, it kind of just looked like normal network activity. That's why nobody really caught it at first. Do we know how long they were in there, how long they were operating with this? Boy, I don't remember exactly from the indictment. I do believe that that was spelled out in there, but I believe it was a period of weeks and they were running sort of scans thousands of times. I mean, this wasn't like they were quick in and out. As you say, they were in there kind of lurking and they weren't discovered immediately because they had taken all these steps to cover their tracks. One of the things that's interesting about this is that, yes, the Justice Department indicted these four military Chinese military members, but... We don't have them in custody, and there's really no expectation that we will ever have them in our custody. So, I mean, it's just kind of other than, like, I guess, public shaming, you can call it or something, or just calling out China publicly. This is most likely not going to go anywhere. The Justice Department recently has grown more fond of this tactic that law enforcement officials call name and shame. So you saw this with like the Russian interference case where they identify members of Russian intelligence that they say were responsible for various hacking and other social media efforts. And there's no chance that these people are going to come back here, right? Russia is not going to send them back. China is not going to send them back. But just naming them and sort of shaming them in their countries in the view of some Justice Department officials has merit in its own rights. And the FBI the deputy director said yesterday, look, it's true that China is never going to turn these people over, but who knows, maybe one day they travel to a country that's allied with the U.S. and we can take them into custody. You know, maybe they slip up on some international trip. So it's theoretically possible, but practically, probably we will never see them here in court. Yeah, I think the official said it is like a line straight out of a movie, I guess. But one day these criminals will slip up and when they do, we'll be there. (laughs) (laughs) That Um, seems like a little bit of Right, exactly. Matt Zepatoski, national security reporter for The Washington Post. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you for having me. Going back a little to Democratic politics, we're going to talk about the direction that the party is headed. After New Hampshire, we have two frontrunners, Pete Buttigieg on the moderate side and Bernie Sanders on the progressive side. And while the nomination is far from decided, Bernie Sanders, more than any other 2020 candidate, has shaped a lot of the policy agenda for Democrats with things like Medicare for All, and he has campaign rallies full of enthusiastic supporters, very similar to President Trump. There's a big question swirling around, is the Democratic Party the party of Bernie Sanders now? For more on this, we spoke to Michael Cruz. He's a senior staff writer at Politico. Bernie Sanders has been talking about things like Medicare for All, certainly national universal health care for 
going on 50 years. He has, as you alluded to, been at odds with the Democratic Party for decades, much more than he has been working in concert with the Democratic Party. It's remarkable at this point in this unwieldy primary process, his second time running for president, that he has, over the course of five years, really had a huge influence, a profound influence on how Democrats right now are running for president. He is in as good a position as any of the candidates, maybe a better position than any of the candidates to be the nominee. And no matter what happens on Tuesday in New Hampshire, no matter what happens in the coming weeks and months, he has ideologically not dictated, but certainly has had a huge influence on how Democrats are talking about policy proposals, how Democrats are running for president at this point. Definitely in the policy proposals, you see it all over the place. And even more evidence to that, you see it at the campaign rallies and the grassroots fundraising that he does. He touts it very often that uh, all the contributions they get are very low in dollar. I think it was $18 was the last number he was throwing out there, the average contribution, things like that. And you've been to some of the rallies also where there is that electric feel that, I mean, sometimes you just don't get it with other candidates. You know, you sometimes you see like a Joe Biden event and it doesn't seem like there's that much excitement there. And this is the primaries right now. Things will change once it's a general election. But tell us how that reaction has been. Lots of people, understandably so, around the country are just kind of tuning into this process for the most part. But it's been going on for a year plus, to say the least, probably longer than that, depending on how you want to start the clock. But I've been out and about all over the country going to rallies and town halls from Iowa to New Hampshire to South Carolina, et cetera. And as you say, there is a conspicuous difference. This is just the statement of fact that, generally speaking, Bernie Sanders events are much better attended and much more energetic than certainly Joe Biden's events, but many of the other candidates too. You know, there was a moment in Iowa toward the end of 2019 when Pete Buttigieg started to draw eye-openingly large crowds. He's still doing that in New Hampshire. Those are the two. I mean, to the extent that what we saw in Iowa reflected what we political observers have been seeing for months on the ground, it was a pretty accurate representation in some sense in my eyes. The two people who have consistently have drawn the biggest, most energetic crowds, Bernie Sanders and Pete Buttigieg. Even that said, though, a Sanders crowd feels a little bit different than a Buttigieg crowd. A Sanders crowd is younger. A Sanders crowd is a little louder, a little bit more charged up. The level of commitment and devotion to Bernie Sanders, I think, to me, has felt closer to a Trump rally than to an event held by any other Democrat. Obviously, there's a huge difference between Bernie Sanders and Donald Trump. There's a huge difference between a Trump rally and a Sanders rally. But it is closer a Sanders rally to a Trump rally than to, say, a Biden town hall or a Klobuchar town hall, et cetera. The level of commitment, the feeling of fanhood almost more than a citizen looking to make a political decision, who should I vote for? There is a level of fanhood that is just tangible when you go to see Bernie Sanders. Well, and it goes in part with some of the things that Bernie talks about. You know, he's calling for a quote unquote revolution. You know, he said that many times and people that are joining a revolution have that type of fandom associated with it. We're talking about the policies that he's kind of inspired and, and things like that. But even the next generation of lawmakers 
have also been inspired by him and endorse him. Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez comes to mind. I think she's stepped in at some of his rallies to be a surrogate and whatnot. And she drives that same type of enthusiasm a lot of times. But again, kind of in that same model of a Bernie Sanders. Something I've heard out on the trail at Sanders events from young people in particular is for them the importance of Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and some of the other so-called squad members, other young women of color in Congress who have endorsed Bernie Sanders very much on the Sanders train. For those people, in particular the young people who are enthusiastic supporters of Sanders, their presence is evidence that this is not just a one-man show. This is not something that is going to end when Bernie Sanders, who is turning 79 later this year after all, is no longer with us, that it can continue, that there is this movement afoot, and that in the person of AOC, who could be Bernie Sanders' granddaughter, there is a long, long runway that Sanders supporters certainly see. I think the question, of course, and it is an open, active question that is unresolved to me, is whether or not Bernie Sanders can win in this primary or can win in a general election, and whether or not somebody like AOC or the other squad members could win elsewhere in the country beyond their districts, whether there is truly a broad coast-to-coast appeal for their movement politics, for their quote-unquote revolution, as opposed to sort of the unifier candidate like a Pete Buttigieg or even an Amy Klobuchar or even a Joe Biden. And then obviously is the big question. That's what we're going through right now. The Democratic Party has been kind of lost since President Barack Obama left. There has no been clear leader. But Bernie Sanders, as we've been mentioning, keeps popping up, you know, throughout his career has always kind of been a disruptor in that sense. But could he beat President Trump in the election? Bernie Sanders is a Democratic socialist by his own naming, calls himself that. And President Trump constantly rails against socialism. He did it at the State of the Union. You know, socialism will never ruin healthcare or whatever, however he said it. And that's going to be something really tough to beat down when there is a large majority of the country that really does like President Trump. They do feel benefits from his administration, whether economically or just in the policies that he's put out there. And that's going to be a tough sell for that half of the country. On the one hand, it's hard to see Bernie Sanders beating Donald Trump. On the other hand, it was hard to see Donald Trump becoming president in the first place. And so I think anybody who makes a statement with such certitude that surely Bernie Sanders couldn't win in a general election just shouldn't or can't because (laughs) to some extent the rules of politics have been shattered (laughs) by Trump and who the heck knows. You know, one of the things I tried to point out in this piece is that there is a track record if you are familiar with or take the time to even learn in some cursory way the long, long arc history of Bernie Sanders. There's a track record of winning when he wasn't supposed to and of winning in a particular way, which is to say at the expense of the Democratic Party. He wanted to become mayor of Burlington, Vermont by beating a Democrat and then maintained that office by essentially forcing the Democrats in that city of 40,000 or so. It's a submission. Beat them and beat them down. And then he did it statewide to become a member of Congress. It took some luck. It took some timing. Nothing that he did was guaranteed to work, but it did work. Michael Cruz, senior staff writer at Politico. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks so much. Don't forget to join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on Twitter and Daily Dive Podcast on Facebook. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. 
follow us on iHeartRadio, or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this is the Daily Dive Weekend Edition.